Welcome back. This is season two, episode two. And if you haven't listened to my most recent podcast episode with Rachel, I'm doing something a little different. And I'm not talking with students, but I'm talking with friends and acquaintances who might have a little bit of a different and unique perspective about life in the U.S. And um, as we know, the country is very diverse in how we see things. And so I wanted just to share a few perspectives of the people in my world. And um, today I'm talking with Anik Patel. He is a doctor who works with a population that is dear to my heart. It's been one of the greatest joys of my life to work with refugees and immigrants. And so he talks about his work with that population and also his experience as an Indian American. Um, I do have a small disclaimer. There's a little bit of a glitch and a delay. And so sometimes it Um, sounds like we're talking over each other or there's maybe a little awkward pause, but that's just a glitch in the recording. It's very tiny, but I do apologize. So anyway, I hope that you enjoy. Okay, so this is the second episode with Americans on the podcast. And so today we have Anik Patel. He is a doctor who has been in the Kansas City area um, in the past. And so some mutual friends connected us. And I just thought his story, just his own perspective as an Indian American and also his work with refugees and migrants you'll hear about later, I thought would be a really great thing to hear for all of us. So Anik, thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. So um, maybe just tell us where, where are you now in this pandemic life that we all have? Yeah, um, so I'm on the Navajo Reservation. So I'm in a town called Ganado, um, which is in Arizona. It's about, I'd say two and a half hours um, west of Flagstaff and about three hours east of Albuquerque. So somewhere kind of close to the border of Arizona and New Mexico. Um, Yeah, so I'm the only pediatrician at this hospital in like probably a 40, 45 mile radius. Wow. So... Do you see a lot of patients every day? Like what, what's your daily life look like? Yeah. So I, right now I'm seeing patients from eight to five on Mondays through Fridays. Um, and just helping out with any other pediatric patients that may show up that they need help with. Um, so it's been a really, uh, interesting place to work for sure. Just because I'm, since I'm the only pediatrician out here, I'm trying to create different, um, things that like I've learned like, you know, that are pretty standard at other clinics. And so they haven't been doing as much. And so we're working on like autism screening and dental prevention and things like that that are pretty standard at other clinics. Hmm. Great. I'm sure that, that they love having you there. Yeah, it's it's been really nice. And, you know, I've been on the res before. Um, I was here for a year or for six months last year, um, just in another town called Chinle, which is 45 minutes north of here. Um, so, yeah, I have a I have kind of a longer kind of relationship with the Navajo, which has been great. Nice. How did you first end up working on the reservation? Yeah. So, um, so I guess to kind of give more background uh, about me. So I finished residency in 2017 in Kansas City and then basically kind of had like a life crisis and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, so I worked for a year in Kansas City at Children's Mercy um, as an urgent care attending, a pediatric urgent care attending. And worked in a couple of, or volunteered in a couple of refugee camps in Greece and Bangladesh during that time. Um, And then kind of got lured out to Utah, University of Utah in Salt Lake City, to do a two-year pediatric global health fellowship. Um, Technically, it's called a Global Rural Underserved Child Health Fellowship. And so um, it's a two-year program where you spent 12 months essentially in Rwanda as a hospitalist, 
um, six months on the Navajo reservation, which is where I was in Chinle, um as outpatient doctor and inpatient, as well as attending newborn deliveries. And then six months in Salt Lake City, um, acting as an emergency department attending and also working in the observation unit um, and doing teaching with residents and fellows and medical students. Wow. Wow. So you've seen a lot around the world then. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. I feel like a lot of times when people look at my CV, um, they think I've traveled a ton and I think relatively I have, but it's been really recently that I've finally gotten to do that Um, for the like really for the past three or four years is when I've really gotten to kind of come into my own and do a lot more global health, which is kind of what I've always wanted to do. It's fascinating to me just as a teacher, we're not in at all the same profession, but it seems like we've worked with some other populations. And so I'm really interested to hear just your perspective about working with, you know, people in their countries and also people who come here. So we'll get to that in a minute. I have probably lots of questions for you, but (laughs) (laughs) um, so just, Tell us a little bit about you and your personal mm-hmm. background and, mm-hmm. and anything you want to share about that. Yeah. Um, so like you said, I'm Indian American. So my parents immigrated to the U.S. in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, my dad came over uh, on a student visa, a civil engineering student visa um, to the University of West Virginia, or I believe it was West Virginia Tech or University of West Virginia, somewhere in West Virginia. <laughs> um, yeah. And then he brought over my mom um, when they got married. Um, and they're both pretty young, if I remember right, like early 20s or late teens. Um, and then I was born in Texas. Um, my sister was born in Kentucky a few years oh, later. Wow. Yeah, and, but we moved around between Texas, Kentucky, Alabama, um, Pennsylvania. We moved around a lot because my dad had a, kind of a harder time finding a job um, as a civil engineer. Hmm. And then we landed in Jeff City um, in 1993 during the flood. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I remember, like, that's, like, one of my earliest memories of Missouri is the flood and the water around the Capitol building, um, because the hills around Jeff City are pretty big. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and so then I grew up in Jeff City, basically, we're one of the first, like, Indian or South Asian families. Yeah, I've never Seattle. been to Jeff City, but I can't, mm-hmm. my image of it is not one that's very diverse. Yeah, I don't know no, if it's true or not. No, it's, it, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, it's, when we were there, it was probably a town of like 30,000 or so. Um, and like you said, not very diverse in the sense of um, immigrants. Uh, like, I believe like in my high school class, it was probably one of two Indian kids in a class of about 500. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah. So we grew up in Jeff City. Um, my sister and I both ended up attending University of Missouri or MU. Um, and... Oh, yeah, so did undergrad there, and then I did residency, or sorry, medical school at University of Missouri as well for another four years in Columbia, and then did three more years in Kansas City um, as, as a pediatric resident. So kind of a lot of Missouri-based training, yeah, for sure. But then, like, after that, I moved away from Kansas City um, in twenty seven or 2018, um, which is how I've done a ton of my traveling now. So this is a huge question, and mm-hmm. you can answer it however you want. But yeah. I mean, what was it like being an Indian American kid in Missouri? Um, I think. I mean, I think it was probably. I, I would say it's probably a difficult kind of growing up in certain ways. Um, I was definitely somebody that stuck out, 
in, like whether it's elementary school or middle school or high school. Um, and I think trying to explain like our culture and like where I came from was always kind of um, difficult as well. Like I remember like in elementary school, uh, there was like a kid that compared us to Native Americans and trying to explain mm. to him that we're not Native American. Um, and then I think 9-11 really changed um, things for us as well. Uh, a lot mm. of, yeah, a lot of people, I mean, I would say a lot of people were fine with us, but there were some people that weren't as kind to us, I think, after 9-11 um, because they presumed we were Muslim or Middle Eastern. Mm. Um, yeah, and so we we got a little bit of harassment with that as well, um, and I will definitely say it's gotten a lot better since then. Uh, but I think that definitely influenced kind of how I grew up and how I saw life. So, how did you see life? Um, I I think all soft spots. I know that's another that big question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, these are like very mm-hmm. good deep questions. Um. um I I think for me like I always had a soft spot for people that don't fit in um yeah and I think I I, you know the pain of going through um that uh, growing up as a kid and then middle school and high school or even into college and med school even I would say um I think it's both a gift and also kind of a burden in certain ways too Mm -hmm. um but for me it definitely influence like my career choice and kind of like what I'm doing now um, because of those experiences. So you've naturally navigated toward people like in the margins Mm -hmm. kind of. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the work you've done and with kind of a marginalized Mm -hmm. population and can describe that? Because refugees, I think, you know, we hear about them a lot Mm -hmm. and, you know, I feel fortunate to have had, you know, close contact. My friends are refugees. I've taught refugees. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of Americans have never met one. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you just hear what's on the news or you hear the numbers or you hear, you know, all these negative things. But um, what has been your experience working with refugees? Yeah. Um, so I so for continuity clinic, which is our basically our pediatric clinic and residency, we I was um, I was assigned to work at a Hispanic or a Latinx majority clinic in Kansas City. Um, which was a really great experience. We, it was like a bilingual clinic um, with all the providers from like the secretary, secretaries up to the doctors spoke Spanish and English. And so um, that was definitely a big part of my training was working with, I would say, probable refugees. And I know that there's a lot of uh, discrepancy about the semantics of who you call a refugee mm. versus an asylum seeker versus like an undocumented person. Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, and as a doctor, we never ask families if, they're uh, undocumented or not. Um, but so I think I would say I'm sure that a few of them were undocumented at that clinic. Um, and so that was a really great experience. And then right after residency, I went to uh, Greece. Um, so I, like the week right after I finished training in July 2017, I went to Greece. Um, so that was on the island of Lesbos, which is, I believe, about 14 miles west of the Turkish coast. Um, and so I was in a camp called Moria. Uh, that was the one that had the fire. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. Yeah. So that was the one that burned down um, two months ago or a month and a half ago, I believe. Um, so when I was there, it was a camp of 4,000, which at that time oh seemed like it was massive. Um, now it's like 20,000 or so. Um, and so it was mostly Middle Eastern and African refugees, like 
I mean, honestly, there were people all the way from Cuba and Dominican Republic, all the way, really? yeah, all the way east to Bangladesh. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and so there were people, and even somebody from Bolivia when I was there. Um, yeah, and so I think with these different channels of people trying to get to Europe, there, I think some of these folks got funneled through Turkey and then got caught in Greece, um, the, the kind of more further out kind of countries like Bolivia and Cuba and Dominican Republic. Um, but yeah, so I was there with a Dutch NGO called uh, Boat Refugee Foundation, um, was working mostly with Dutch and German doctors um, and some other volunteers as well, like teachers and um, social workers um, from the US and uh, Ireland, the UK. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we I was taking care of pediatric and adult patients. Um, and to kind of give you a sense of like how much out of my comfort zone I was like I was just training taking care of kids I hadn't seen adults in three years before that um and so I had to help take care of adults because there were a really limited number of doctors um and so that was kind of a learning curve for sure and luckily I had other family medicine doctors to help me out if there were things I wasn't comfortable with um and so that was a really tough experience, I think, because a lot of the folks in that camp had already survived a ton of trauma. Um, you know, can you give some examples of? Yeah, yeah. So a, a vast majority of these people came from the Middle East, so Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Turkey, uh, and so a lot. Of, obviously, a lot of the Syrian um, refugees, they were fleeing the war that started in 2011. When I was there in 2017, it was. Not that um, there weren't as many people getting to Greece because the Turkish and the EU um, had a deal basically trying to prevent refugees from crossing the sea to get to Europe. And then Turkey got some money in exchange for that. Um, but I still, we still saw quite a few Syrians. And so a lot of the Syrians we saw had um, like psychological trauma, especially with the kids. Um, a lot of kids having mm-hmm. trouble sleeping, a lot of psychosomatic symptoms meaning like their bodies would react without them realizing it and some people Mm. would say like they're faking it but mentally they thought these symptoms were real um we i saw like kids with like scars on their heads from um trauma that they had endured from years past um so like for those families it was a lot more psychological trauma um was there were there services um, for them for that like psychological well, like counseling? Yeah, MSF or? Doctors Without Borders was there, and they provided some mental health services. And I, if I remember right, they were providing kind of limited resources or limited services um, because there almost everybody in that camp had trauma of some sort. Um, because between the Syrian refugees, um, you had the Afghan refugees that were fleeing civil, you know, the civil war and the Taliban. You had it, it, the Iraqis. Um, fleeing as well, like sectarian violence. You had Kurdish refugees from Northern Iraq fleeing um, violence. Uh, Then down into the Congo, you had political refugees as well as, uh, you know, with all the civil wars going on in Congo, there were people fleeing that. You had political refugees from like the Cameroon, um, West Africa. Um, You had economic migrants from West Africa as well as like Bangladesh um, and Pakistan. Uh, Yeah, it was like a really interesting mix of people and they're all basically stuck on this island um and this mm. island they put uh, the eu put a lot of these people on this on these islands between lesbos samos kios these little islands and basically kept them there for two or three years if not longer 
mm. um, to process their paperwork, uh, paperwork. And a lot of these folks ended up getting deported back um, to their mm. homelands. Yeah. And so this was, I would call it more of an internment camp um, rather than refugee camp because there are definitely like barbed wire fences everywhere and Greek police kind of patrolling and that sort of thing. So, um, like, your perspective of just the refugee crisis mm-hmm. in general, you know, a lot of countries are being overrun. Um, and so it seems like, you know, a lot of people think, you know, refugees should stay where mm-hmm. they are. So what is your response to that? Mm-hmm. Why, why don't they stay where they are? Um, I would say that the vast majority of refugees are leaving because they don't have a choice. Um, most of these families I saw, most of the kids I saw, didn't want to leave their homelands, I, I think. And they, I, you know, I think for any parent to put their kids in these little rafts um, on the sea, mm-hmm. you know, with in crowded boats, I, I think it would have to be a really tough decision for parents to do that, um, to risk it, especially if they know their families, they can't swim. Um, and, yeah, and right. so I, I think these situations really call on people to have a little bit of grace and compassion for these people. Um, you know, I, I will also say, though, that the situation is a little bit more nuanced as well. Like, I kind of also get it from um, the receiving end of it as well. So, yeah. Because so mm-hmm. it's a huge task to know how to exactly. handle it. So, right? like, on that Greek island on Lesbos, like, initially the the people on this island were very, very welcoming to the refugees, especially in the early years. And then as the burden kind of got heavier and heavier and the violence kind of increased in the camp, um, it kind of often overflowed, like but the the boiling point got reached often. Um, mm-hmm. And and I could see wh- why that happens. You know, there's, yeah, right. There's sure. a ton of people from different countries coming. You don't know their backgrounds. There definitely was some ISIS and um, terrorist groups in potentially in this camp. Um, from these places and so there's always that scare as well um and then like on top of that their lifestyles kind of change the people on these islands because uh the refugee camp being on that on their island their traditional way of life so yeah so i think i i kind of get it from that perspective um but i actually feel a lot of compassion for these people that are in greece um that aren't refugees that are Greek themselves because it's a lot to be asked of. Like the EU is putting a lot of pressure on these folks to help with this, uh, with this responsibility uh, without much help from the EU's end. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an untenable it, situation. A lot of times. It is. And you imagine. know, like whenever, so the uh, camp, when it burned down um, two months ago, it, I wasn't super surprised to be honest, because when I was there, there was quite a bit of violence as well. Um, a lot of intra-refugee group violence, like refugees from different countries kind of fighting between themselves, mm-hmm. but also between the Greek police and the refugees. Uh, just, mm-hmm. and it was just a lot of frustration on the refugees' part because the quality of life there was so terrible in terms of access to water, access to bathrooms, um, 20 people like in a, basically like a trailer, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, mm. like, there were hardly any schools, if I remember right, like, no, not a lot of toys, if any toys for the kids. Um, so, th- yeah, I think that experience opened my eyes to the refugee and humanitarian disaster situations, um, and it kind of pushed me into the global health work that I do now. 
And you're on your way back down to the border. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So I, um, I've done, I've done a couple more, like, I guess essentially, um, medical trips overseas. Um, like I was in Bangladesh in 2018. Um, and I'm still involved with these NGOs. That NGO was called Med Global. Um, so I went and worked in, with Rohingya refugees, uh, there. Mm. And then um, in terms of refugee camps, I was in Matamoros, which is along the Mexican border or um, U.S.-Mexican border. And that was in August. Um, I was there for two and a half weeks and I'm going back again for Christmas time uh, for another two, two and a half weeks, too. What's that like, like during COVID? Uh, down there in Matamoros? Um, yeah. So, so I guess to give context to people that are listening, um, so Matamoros is a city right across the river the Rio Grande or um, Rio Bravo, as the um, refugees will call it. And so that's across the river from Brownsville, Texas. It's literally like a bridge away from the U.S. Um, the refugees have been collecting there since uh, last year, essentially, um, because of the asylum-seeking um, policies that uh, President Trump in- put in place. Um, and so mm-hmm. I don't know if you're very familiar kind of with those policies, Jenny. I, I am, but go ahead yeah. and explain those just in yeah, case you yeah, are. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. Um, it really started with um, kind of his administration um, putting these laws into place or executive orders into place. There's like a Remain in Mexico policy um, where refugees or asylum seekers, they are forced to stay in Mexico um, if they want to seek asylum in the U.S. So um, they can't stay in the U.S. until it's officially approved. Um, there's like, there was a metering policy that was happening and by metering that meant that, um, the U S government would give out like numbers to people in the line and only a certain number of people would be allowed into the U S. And so people were kind of piled up against the border because they were scared they might lose their place in line. Um, there was also like a third country rule policy where if you're, if you're a asylum seeker or refugee trying to pass through to get to the U S if the in-between countries are considered or deemed safe, then you should be staying there and not coming to the U.S. So, like, if you're going from, yes, like exactly, and then, or... then you should stay in Guatemala or Mexico. Um, so, the, all those like policies added up, and then on top of that, the pandemic. Kind of going back to your original question about COVID, the pandemic has really shut things down now on the border because um, now they aren't letting really anybody into the U.S. Um, seeking asylum, um, and so this isn't even people. Um, staying in the U.S. This is people just wanting to ask if they could stay in the U.S. So now these people are basically stuck along the border waiting to see if the border will open up so they can even ask to seek for asylum. Um, so let me play yeah. devil's advocate here for a second. Um, so I think people would say there needs to be, you know, a really systematic way for people from another country to request mm-hmm. to come in. So, you know, I think people might see or view these policies as ways to create mm-hmm. order. What would you say to um, that? Uh-huh. Like, what's wrong with these policies yeah, so from I think, your perspective? I think there's a way to create order without dehumanizing people. Um, I think these policies, you know, I th- even if they're meant to create order, they're causing a lot of chaos. Um along the border uh and yeah so for, for example, example like, so these folks are waiting along along the river waiting to see if they could cross 
legally um and because they can't they don't know how long it's going to take some of them are risking their lives to get too like uh into the details about this just because of safety issues but the cartels are very involved with border crossings and um despite like the wall that uh donald trump's trying to build i think despite all these um policies to try to keep what's perceived as bad people out um people are still finding ways to get into the u.s illegally um including the supposed bad people as well so i i think Mm. by like by shutting these people out and pretending that um that this is creating order it's actually causing more disorder and a little bit more chaos along the border than it was before i think there's a way to kind of potentially create a system that's more humane and orderly than what's going on right now. And from, from the people that you've met, what are they mm-hmm. leaving from? Um, so most of the people in Matamoros, so again, to again, give context, so Matamoros is, was a camp of about 3,000. Um, it essentially started right across from the point of entry into the U.S. and then kind of got pushed into a park area um, it, that was allowed by the city. Um, because of Hurricane Hannah and some of the flooding that was associated with it, uh, a lot of people had to move into the city, which is kind of dangerous because the cartels uh, operate in there. Um, so now it's about close to a thousand plus or minus of people that are there, and the Mexican um, nationals won't really, the national government won't really allow more people to stay in this camp. So I think it's starting to wind down in terms of the size of the camp. Um, it's mostly people from about seven or eight countries. Um, vast majority are from uh, Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Um, there's also people from Cuba, Haiti, uh, Colombia, and Peru. Um, mm-hmm. Yep, Peru. Peru. A couple of people from Peru, too. Yeah. Hmm. And so what I'm asking you really to describe mm-hmm. everything, but what are what causes them to choose to do this? Like, what is the alternative mm-hmm. for them? Yeah, so I, I think that's the tough part is a lot of these people don't have alternatives. I, um, they So, for instance, a lot of the Cuban folks um, are very educated people. So, like, some of the Cubans I met and worked with, they're Cuban doctors, um, Cuban nurses. Uh, mm-hmm. They... So some of them um, had spoken out against the government or spoken out against like allies. So for Venezuela's government. And, and so because of that, mm. they had to flee because for their own safety. Um, there's people like from Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, um, in Mexico, they're fleeing gang violence. Um, and the thing with gangs that a lot of people don't realize is they're in, very international. Like you can't just go from one country and escape them, escape from them, and go to another one. Um, the reach of these cartels and gangs is very broad, um, and so mm. a lot of these folks are just trying to get away from gang violence. Either gangs trying to recruit them into their uh, gangs, or um, if they spoke out against the gangs and like retaliations, um, you know like things like sex trafficking. Um, they're all just trying to get away from that so that their kids and their families can be safe. Um, yeah, I met um, right. some women that were domestic violence survivors in Mexico that were trying to get away from partners. Um, there were some uh, transgender women that were in the camp that were just trying to be free and not oppressed anymore. 
um, as well as some uh, lesbian and gay refugees as well from Central America. Um, mm. So it's like a whole re- host of reasons, but at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to people not feeling safe and people escaping and fleeing rather than wanting to leave on their own choice. And I've always said, you know, no one wants to leave their home, Mm -hmm. right? Like people want to stay where they have their community, where they speak their language, where they have their food. Like it's a really big hardship to Mm -hmm. move to another country if you don't want to. And so, you know, it's not like, oh, people just, hey, on a whim, let's Mm -hmm. try to go to America. (laughs) Like it's, you know, they don't want to leave home. No, and like like you hear these stories and you bear witness to what these people have gone through and it's, it's impressive and it's also terrifying like what they right like um, oh yeah if you've read the book um the beast by oscar martinez or american american dirt um by janine cummins yeah yes. it kind of uh-huh. uh talks uh-huh. about these kind of roots that these folks had to go through but um like oscar martinez's book really is a nonfiction book and it talks in detail about the roots that these folks have to go through um and enrique I have that, but it's on my bookshelf it's on my list for sure yeah, yeah, yeah so exactly. good. And so, really good. you know, there's like notorious places along this route that everybody knows, like you're very lucky to survive, like uh, Darien's Gap, which is be- between Panama and Colombia, like a really forested jungle area that's notorious for being killed. Um, there's uh, Ariag, like, um, or La Lecheria, which is like a trail where a lot of women get assaulted. Um mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's La Bestia, the beast, the train, um, which, you, which you've heard about, where people mm-hmm. have to climb on top of trains to try to get to the north. Yeah, it's yeah. So and, dangerous. And yeah. so the folks that finally make it to the border, um, they're survivors. They've, a lot of times, they've gone through multiple attempts to try to get to the U.S. and have gotten deported and have tried to come back again, despite all these risks. And, um, you know. Not to mention how difficult exactly. it is once they yeah, get yeah, here. This is half the you know, there's there's yep, so exactly. much. It's half yeah. the battle. And I think um, with COVID especially, uh, it, it's gotten really hard for them to try to get into the U.S. And um, with the child separations that were happening and kind of the tougher restrictions that were happening on asylum seeking, um, it's just gotten really difficult for the families. And so, like, when I was there in Matamoros, so I was in August, um, COVID wasn't um, hitting them too badly because, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of these folks were living in tents and shacks outside. And so that was actually kind of a blessing in disguise because, obviously, with COVID, um, less air circulation makes it more likely you'll get it. So if you're outside, you're, if you're outside mm-hmm. it's probably better. Uh, yeah, and also the folks hmm. in the camp are very religious about wearing masks. And so, yeah. So, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> nice. I know. And so you see little kids running around with masks, which, yeah, that could be a whole other discussion topic for the doctor. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure could. I'm sure it could. Yeah, so COVID wasn't as bad in the camp, thankfully. Um, but they're still very much at risk because they're in a crowded camp, for sure. Mm-hmm. And maybe if they have lack of water yeah, well, so, or... You know, oh, so like actually, hand so washing. this is actually really nice. Is um, there's some engineers that are in that camp now that help finally kind of like put up like hand washing stations and like cloth, uh, like laundry kind of services and like showers. So they that part of it, thankfully, they actually do have. Um, yeah, yeah. So good. That's really good. Great. Well, I kind of want to come full circle a little bit and ask you how you feel about the new vice president elect is that 
extra meaningful uh, too? Or... Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't say it without like yeah. a big smile on my face. Um, I, you know, for me, I hope, hopefully it's okay we get political since you asked about it, yeah? Okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, go for it. I will say like in 2016, whenever um, he won, back then as a child of immigrants, I it hurt a lot, I think, for me um, to kind of hear his rhetoric against immigrants and kind of things he said about minorities, um, which I, I, you know, I, I I was hoping that the 2016 election was more of a fluke, that it was just kind of a chance that it happened the way it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, right. the election this past week, it was both good and bad, I think. Um, in the in the bad sense for me was seeing how many people continue to vote for him. Uh, so what does that say to you? Like, yeah, what do you um, take from that? For me, what, what does it that says say to you? There's a large part, a portion of this population. I mean, nearly half the electorate that was willing to condone kind of the things that his administration's done to these people along the border and to refugees seeking asylum with the Muslim ban, the kind of cruel things he said about different ethnic groups. Um, and so for me, it, it was really disheartening to see that even despite all the evidence of the things he's done and will do and wants to do, like people still voted for him. Um, I, I, you know, and I think the other thing too is first time in 2016 when he got elected, I was like, I hope that this is a fluke. 2020 though showed me there's a lot more work folks like I have to do and people have to do. Um, so you feel like you have to do yeah, some work I, yourself. Mm-hmm. So what would that? I, I think for me, like? like I, I'm in a like a really privileged kind of position. Um, I think some people would possibly call it like an elitist, like educated circle or bubble. Um, I I think in terms of not judging people, I could be probably a little bit better about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, um, couldn't we all? <laughs> I, but I think yeah. for me, just like the work I'm doing with refugees and immigrant health and global health, um, social justice and medicine for me are intertwined. And this year, especially with the pandemic, it's shown that more than ever that you can't look at medicine in a vacuum. You have to look at it through the lens mm-hmm. of social justice as well. Um, and so there's good and bad, I think, that came out with this election. Um, so even though it was disheartening to see how close the election was, it was, and it was actually really terrifying for me to see it, how close it was. Um, I think it just kind of gives me more impetus to not get complacent about this and kind of keep pushing and working hard, um, especially for these folks that may not have as much of a a platform or have limited privilege. I, you know, I think this election also, um, had a lot of meaning for me, uh, knowing that these folks along the border, um, I, you know, I knew that they were watching the election. I know that their hopes and livelihoods really depended upon what happened with this. And worldwide, I got so many messages from friends. I mean, not refugee friends only, but like just people around the world who were just kind of breathing a sigh of relief as I was. And so this, this doesn't just affect Americans within our borders. I got text messages and calls from like Ivory Coast, Rwanda, Germany, Belgium, Hong Kong. I mean, all over. And, um, yeah, like for me personally, it I felt like a sudden um, weight being lifted off my shoulders for the first time in four years. Like I could finally breathe, like coming up for air after four years. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I felt like yeah, have yeah. I not been breathing right for four years because I, I felt I like yeah, I did exactly. And I don't think I realized like how 
um, how stressed I've been the past four years with uh, President Trump being in power. And it's nothing like what the folks along the border are going through right now by any means. But, um, right. Mm-hmm. But I think as an ally of people in the margins, I think, mm-hmm. you know, you do feel a burden. Yeah, no, for sure. On. And, you know, so I was texting my friends along the border who I'm going to see in a month, which I'm really excited about. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're really, really hopeful. And it it just brought me a lot of joy um, to kind of hear that and see that. Um, yeah. yeah. And then Kamala Harris. Back to my initial yeah, question. Uh, what was that like that for you? That was really cool. Uh, so she, like like a lot of people probably know, she's Jamaican-American and Indian-American, South, South Asian-American. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've always kind of been a big fan of hers anyways. Uh, but kind of that Saturday, whenever they both gave their speeches and when Kamala Harris like alluded to her 19-year-old mom immigrating to the U.S., um, yeah, that, that part really got me for sure. I think just... Because your mother was... Yeah, yeah. If I remember right, she was either early 20s or late teens, probably like Kamala Harris's mom. Um, Mm -hmm. And so just, I I mean, I'm just imagining how I I would have been at 19 years old, and that would have been terrifying to move all around the world like that. Um, Right. And for me, it was, even though the election was so close and there's still a lot of work to do, it was really um, affirming as a child of immigrants to see her in that position to just kind of reaffirm again that we have a place in this country. Um, And I I think that was really good for my soul for sure. And, you know, she embodies so much for so people, Mm -hmm. I mean, so many people like women, let alone women, you've got, you know, black Americans, you've Mm -hmm. got Indian Americans. I just feel like such a huge population of people are encouraged by her and and, and what she's done. Interesting. Like the, so Tuesday was obviously election day. And I think for me, it was really nerve wracking. And obviously the past few days for a lot of people in the U.S. were really nerve wracking. And then Saturday when the news came out that he won, uh, that Joe Biden had won, it was just like a relief. And then the Saturday night when the speeches, when they gave the speeches and the fireworks and all that, um, it was, I thought it was like a really good moment for a reset for me as well as for the country, I think. Um, you know, just like a moment of mm. hope again. Um and like, right. and I, I think hopefully that people are listening to this don't think by any means that this is a very much like anti-Republican sentiment I'm having. I, I think this president's been really different um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I have friends that are, are conservative and Republicans as well. And I think with his policies, I've just been really disheartened, disappointed just with the lack of um, compassion, I think, and grace. Yeah. Right. I do think a lot of it is anti-Trump and not anti-Republican. At least that's how I might like in my. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think hopefully people kind of take a step back and think about what's going on in the world. Um, Because because like I don't think any of us really would want to separate 666 kids from their families. I I would like right. Like I would like to think that that's something that we would all agree is not okay um but yeah yeah i mean yeah i i do think all of us as humans really can mm-hmm. relate if we can get past yeah, the partisanship I, yeah i i have i have hope, hope again i think and that's really nice and I, you know i'm lucky in that this year especially i feel like 
the social justice kind of movement and then my medical work, the two have fused together so well. And I feel like I could finally like articulate why I'm doing medicine and why I'm doing the work I'm doing. Hmm. Well, I, I really enjoyed <laughs> talking to you. I could talk to you probably a lot longer. Um, as, as I mentioned, you know, I've applied to work, you know, at some of the refugee camps. It's probably not the best time for an American to be going anywhere. But but um, I really admire what you do and the way you do it and your perspective. So I really oh, yeah. no, appreciate so you talking to me today about it. I feel like we covered a lot of ground in that conversation. Um, but as I mentioned in the intro... I just have such a deep love for immigrants and refugees, and so I was so interested and excited to hear what Anik had to say about that, and so I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, I think we'll have at least one or two more episodes like this, so I hope you tune in. Thanks for listening. <laughs>